This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back to the Canadian Investor Podcast. I'm here with Dan Kent on our regular, back to our regular Thursday episode with earnings and news, although not many earnings today, so it'll be mostly news. Dan, Happy New Year. Are you excited to get started? What did you, uh, any crazy plans or anything crazy happen during the holidays for you? No, not really. Um, I went to Mexico for christmas for a bit got back most of my family goes away for christmas so it's pretty slow we don't do much not much going on in the market like you said but there is a lot of interesting news a big dividend cut from a big u.s company almost a dividend king i think and they didn't quite make it there but yeah it's uh it's been pretty pretty interesting over the holidays i'm just kind of getting back into the market (laughs) because we had a pretty busy pretty busy new year with kind of family coming back from vacation and hanging out with them and so yeah i hope everybody listening had a good new year good holiday and getting back into it yeah exactly and actually did you get any investing ideas or any like epiphanies that happened in mexico like any crazy ideas like for investing that you weren't uh weren't aware of or thought of like i find when i'm on vacation sometimes i get some of my best ideas so i don't know about you well, no, not really. I mean, it got the one thing I will say is it got cold there, like uh, abnormally cold. Sometimes when we would wake up, it would only be like seven or eight degrees, which okay, I mean, in Mexico, yeah. you don't have yeah. heat in your house. It's like 100% humidity there all the time with no heat. Like it was freezing. So, yeah. No, you blankets, better hope you're, uh, as, as long as you're not <laughs> sleeping alone in your bed, I think yeah. you'll be okay, right? Okay, now we'll get started. The first piece of news, and this one we hadn't done too much notes about it, but we're both fairly aware of it. So the uh, Boeing, what's going on with Boeing, and obviously a I think a few days ago, there was a door that just opened and they like mid flight. So they had to come back down. Thankfully, there were no like injuries or at least major injuries or deaths related to that. But I think now carriers have grounded all those kind of planes, which is the 737 Max. But I think it's a specific model of the 737 Max variants. The Max 9, I think it is. Yeah, The Max 9. Okay. And then I know there's been carrier who have noticed like bolts that are now doing inspections bolts that are loose and it's just not a good look for boeing and i was reading that their ceo had the uh, it was like the turnaround year for boeing which complete <laughs> which completely went out the door uh, no pun intended here with the essentially within the first five days of the year so it, it is i don't know i just find boeing has uh, had quite a turbulent five years i would say since the 737 max the issues that i think there were two planes that that crashed i think just before the pandemic and and kind of from an investing perspective and i don't know what you think here i mean the plus is that it's essentially a duopoly with uh, airbus out in france um there's also ember air but typically they'll do a bit smaller planes but you know, the, it's a good thing that there's a duopoly in place, but at the same time, they seem like they cannot get things right. I mean, you think they would have learned their lesson and do some extensive inspections of all their models with the different problems, but that doesn't seem to be the case. 
Yeah, their uh, their stock price, like their stock chart over the last five years, is absolutely bonkers. Like it it dropped massively because of the pandemic, and then it started coming back up. And then they had the max the max eight issues, which was. I think it had something to do with like a, a wing stabilizer or something that ended up malfunctioning and the pilots weren't trained. So it yeah, ended yeah, up that's... causing the planes to go down. So it plummeted again there and then it finally started to see a resurgence and then this goes on. Like this wasn't even apparently like an actual uh, emergency door. It was like a dummy section of the plane where they could have put an emergency door. And it just blew out of the side, and luckily nobody was sitting there. What a crazy situation! They found the they found the iPhone that got sucked out, though. Okay, fu- that was an iPhone. <laughs> yeah, they found it intact, like it's still. Apparently, they turned it on, and the boarding pass was the first thing that popped up. It just landed in a bush after it oh, got wow. sucked out of the plane. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's something else. Yeah, I think it just the max. I think it happened just before the pandemic. I think that's when uh, the original issue, I think it would have been like early 2020, like right before the pandemic. The Max 8 was? Yeah, the Max 8. Oh, yeah, I think that might have been. I'd have to look that up. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly. Anyways, it's around there. I'm pretty sure it was pre-pandemic and then they got hit even harder with, obviously, I think there's some carriers that canceled orders because of the pandemic and so on. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's something I'll keep an eye on. I would say six, seven years ago, I was definitely interested in a company like Boeing, mostly because of the duopoly they had with Airbus. But now, I mean, I'm going to have to see management turn this around for a good period of time, because at some point you just lose confidence. Yeah. And it's it's a kind of product that you have really no margin for error. No. And a, like a duopoly as a consumer right now looks pretty sketchy because of all the problems that are happening with these new planes it's pretty crazy crazy situation yeah no definitely and now we'll move on to another piece of news this one i know a lot of people own brookfield so there were news that uh, news came out last week that brookfield was buying atc india for 2.5 billion from american tower reit this apparently will make a Brookfield Asset Management the largest operator of telecom towers in India, which has seen growing demand for telecom services. Obviously, India is a growing economic, not power just yet, but definitely, you know, it's starting to get there slowly but surely. A lot of potential because of the population. The total amount of towers is around 77,000 that Brookfield will be getting in that deal from American Tower Reap. The addition of these will bring the total numbers of tower for Brookfield to more than 230,000, which will surpass the current market leader, Indus Towers, which has around 190,000. The operations were apparently a money loser for American Tower REIT, and they are exiting the market after 17 years. I believe they'll be using some of that money to pay off debt. And American Tower REIT had written off $322 million recently from their Indian business, and it was apparently because of the struggles of their top client, Vodafone. Now, 
From my perspective, it's kind of interesting that Brookfield is doing this because, you know, American Tower Reed, that's essentially their business model. <laughs> so, I mean, they they bought CoreSight Realty not too long ago so for data center, but still the core of their business is these, you know, cell phone towers. So I just found it a bit strange that they're not able to make it work in India and Brookfield buying that. But then again, Brookfield seems to have a lot more experience in India with these kind of uh, telecom towers. So it'll be interesting. I mean, I kind of was mixed feelings because on the one hand, I'm like, okay, if American Tower Reed can't make this work, what, you know, I know Brookfield is really good at these kind of things, but, you know, I do have a few questions there. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, but that's the the first sense I got from from reading this story. That was pretty much my thought on it as well, as if if a company that specializes so much in this has been losing money on it, so much so that they, you know, whether they sold it because they had to pay down debt or if they just wanted to exit it outright, like, it'll be interesting to see if Brookfield can turn it around into a, a profitable endeavor, at least. I mean, there's not much more you can do than just wait and see on this. Yeah, exactly. And for a company as large as Brookfield, it's definitely a drop in the bucket. So obviously, if yeah. it goes sideways, it's not the end of the world. But it'll be really interesting, obviously, um, I guess, just finding deals. And we'll see whether they're able to kind of turn this around and make that profitable. Clearly, they're betting big on India. But um, having said that, you know, we'll look at the wonderful world of dividend and why, you know, having a strong history of paying a dividend does not guarantee that it will continue into the future. So you want to tell us what happened with Walgreens? Yeah, so it would have been in early January, they reported earnings. The earnings actually weren't that bad. Uh, They came relatively in line with what was expected. But the thing that came kind of out of, I wouldn't say left field because there were some warning signs, but they slashed their dividend nearly in half, and that's Walgreens. Uh, they reported a 43.7% decline, 43.7% decline in constant currency earnings, despite sales increasing by 10% year over year. And the company maintained its fiscal 24 guidance in terms of adjusted earnings. So it expects to earn $3.20 to $3.50 per share. So if you were looking at this dividend, uh, prior to the cut, they paid $1.92. So if you were just looking at this in relation to earnings, this dividend cut might have come as a pretty big surprise. But as as I mentioned, there were some pretty big warning signs for a long time for uh, Walgreens over the past while. So, I mean, it's kind of been a mess over the last five, six years. So it had free cash flow peak in 2018. And then it was just on a constant spiral downwards since. Since late 2022, the company actually hasn't generated enough free cash flow to cover the dividend, despite uh, earnings saying that it was pretty well covered. And when we look to Walgreens on on a gross margin basis, it's it's pretty bad. So 10 years ago, this was a 30% plus gross margin retailer, and they've shrunk to just 18% in the last quarter. Uh, and just overall, they expect a lot of struggles over the next few years, which Kind of leads me to believe that this might have been like a preemptive cut if Walgreens doesn't really think things are going to get any better over the next while here either. Uh, they're expected to grow earnings at a pretty low pace while revenue is expected to only grow by about 8% cumulatively over the, le- over the next three years. I think it's a pretty important lesson for many investors on a few levels. One would be obviously don't chase yield. So 
overall, there's only two real ways that yield can rise. So a company can either grow its dividend faster than its share price is appreciating, or it can undergo a correction in price. The first situation is definitely the more rare as dividends often grow in line or just under earnings growth unless a company has a ton of room to grow it. One of the prime examples would be Equitable Bank. So you often see they grow their their earnings by, you know, 10 to 15% a year, but their dividend is growing at a 25% clip, but it's just such a a small portion of their overall earnings. It's maybe like 20% payout ratio right now, so they can do this. But the second situation and the one that's more likely is just that the uh, share price is falling. And then from that standpoint, we can kind of see how important free cash flows are in relation to how the market values a company. So, I mean, you could look at Walgreens free cash flow per share and it essentially tracks its share price over the last five years. We can see when free cash flow peaks, share price is high. And when it starts to decline, it's just a constant decline. And then I guess... As you mentioned at the start, the second lesson would just be that past history has absolutely no bearing on future payments. It doesn't matter if they've paid dividends for 10 years, 100 years, they're never guaranteed. Walgreens had raised the dividend for 48 straight years. So there's only two companies to do this in the entire country, and that would be Fortis and Canadian Utilities. So you're talking about a company that in Canada would have the third longest dividend growth streak, cutting the dividend. So yeah, I don't know if you paid too much attention to this, but it was uh, it was pretty big news. Yeah, I saw it. And I think anyone who was looking at Walgreens at the actual financials would have noticed that this was a possibility because I brought it up like we've uh, I've been showing for joint TCI uh, listeners here and subscribers that essentially free cash flow peaked around like 2018. And they were paying a dividend back then. The dividend was well covered by free cash flow. I mean, just like ballparking was probably around like 25, 30% of free cash flow. And then that free cash flow started coming down in 2019. Pretty stable from for the next three years there. But now the dividend had jumped to probably around 40, 45% of free cash flow. And then since uh, 2020, 22 and last year there's been a significant dip in free cash flow so 2022 it dropped by another half and then last year there was barely anything so clearly did not cover the dividend with free cash flow so just looking at that there would have been warning signs for investors to you know if you're relying on that dividend definitely uh you know you may have been good to at least start looking somewhere else or at least know that a dividend cut could have been coming yeah, and it's another important thing to, uh, you know, if you're focusing too much on payout ratios in relations to earnings per share, which could have a ton of, you know, non-cash items on it, things like that, you know, it can impact earnings per share different than cash flow. I always tend to look at, you know, the free cash flow generation in relation to the dividend paid more so than than earnings per share. Yeah, yeah, same for me. So no, that that's great. Anything to add here for Walgreens? By the way, what a weird name. Walgreens Boots Alliance. That's the official name. <laughs> I had to Google it twice. <laughs> I think it has something to do with a UK like joint venture, maybe. I'm not sure. I haven't paid too much attention to Walgreens overall ex- until they kind of cut the dividend. Yeah. I mean, it's not hard yeah, I to... Think it... Yeah, go ahead. I think it was I think it was brought private and then it got and then IPO'd again is that possible 
Yeah, I can't even remember. Yeah, okay. It, it wouldn't have been a hard company to skip over over the yeah. last while just because the, uh, the underlying numbers just looked kind of really poor. But, I mean, it's pretty crazy that it kind of, they're negative cash flow. Yeah. Like, it has really gone downhill. And if you've never seen a Walgreens, like, the best way to say it, uh, to me, at least the ones I've been to, it's like uh, shoppers with, like, booze. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Like, yeah, yeah, that's the one the ones I've been doing, uh, like in Las Vegas. So clearly, uh, you know, you go there, you get some, uh, you can get a decent amount of food too. Uh, but yeah, no. <laughs> I think that might be the only Walgreens I've ever been into is the one on the on the Strip in Vegas. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I've been to a few, but that's the one I remember the most. So I guess we'll move on here to the next uh, segment that we have. So. Obviously, if people have been paying attention, at least I don't know if I'm in an echo chamber or whatnot, but it seems like everyone is talking about the Bitcoin, spot Bitcoin ETF approval in the US. So it sounds like there's a high, high probability that it will be happening this week. And the SEC will, the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, will be approving it. What I've been reading is approving it uh, late Tuesday night or Wednesday. So you'll probably know by the time this episode is released whether it was approved or not. And then to commence trading, uh, essentially Thursday, so when this episode is released, or Friday. Now, to be clear, nothing is confirmed yet, but you'll know when you listen to it, like I just mentioned. And it seems likely that the SEC will approve it on the 10th and would start trading later in the week. But again, it, it is possible that it won't happen. The reason why it's likely to be approved and why the January 10th date, so Wednesday, is so important is because it's a deadline for the SEC to either approve the ARCs and ARC slash 21 shares Bitcoin ETF application or reject it. And that's important because of a court loss in 2023 against Grayscale, the company behind the close-ended GBTC fund. Uh, the SEC does not appear to have a choice but to approve the spot Bitcoin application. And if they're going to deny it, they will have to deny it on something else. So they had originally denied it because there is a price. They're saying there's price manipulation, but it was very hard to stand on that because they had to prove a futures Bitcoin ETF, which, you know, logically <laughs> you can make a pretty good taste that, uh, you know, the spot price will still have an impact on the future price. So it was kind of hard for them to stand on that. And most experts say that they will do this in a batch all at once. By doing this, they won't favor any specific Bitcoin ETFs. That's because typically when there's a new type of ETF launch, the first to market will take most of the market share. So to even things out, they would just essentially approve a basket of them. I think there's about 10, if I remember correctly. And there's also a lot of reports of asset managers like BlackRock, which is one of the uh, the companies that has an ETF application that could be approved this week, that BlackRock is working behind the scenes on finalizing their ETF application to ensure that it is compliant with the SEC requirements. Anything you wanted to add there before I go on to what potential impacts it could have on the price of Bitcoin? No, I mean, the, the uh, you know, all released at once is pretty interesting because I remember that did, it didn't go that way in Canada. I can't remember what the first one was. Was it Q, what was it, QTBC? There was no, one. Well, that wasn't, yeah, that wasn't an ETF. So that was a close. That was oh, like yeah, that's essentially the, the yeah. GBTC equivalent in Canada. Yeah. 
Yeah, there was like a high, there was a fund with way higher fees, but it came yeah. to market first, so it had way higher mm-hmm. AUM. Yeah, and I think it's the same, similar for GBTC right now. It's only the only kind of option in the U.S., although American investors could buy. Uh, there are Bitcoin ETFs in Canada, like you mentioned, and some are traded in USD. So that could be an option, but the reality is a lot of American investors like to invest in U.S.-listed yeah. products. Yeah, so that, that that's going to be interesting. But yeah, I think the, the point is to not favor any of them. And I've seen couple reports from multiple sources uh obviously not my sources but reports i read on that apparently blackrock has like two billion ready on the sidelines to invest in their bitcoin etf when it does get approved so it'll be interesting the really the number of inflows that there is on the first few days and the first quarter and first year just to see if there is actually you know that much demand for a spot bitcoin etf i mean you would imagine there would be there would be pretty big demand, especially with the run-up in price. That's going to be the most interesting thing is with Bitcoin, like what, tripling almost from the end of 2022? 22? Yeah, I think it, yeah, I think it nearly hit tripled. a low. The low was around 15,000, 16,000 USD. So yeah, pretty much triple. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of US investors will be kind of itching to get in here. So I'm, But I'm interested if this is kind of like a, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news type thing where after they come out, what the price is going to do. Yeah, no, and that's a great point. So I think a lot of people are looking at that and I think there's two camps. It's either, like you just said, you know, sell the news and then, you know, it's going to go down as it launches or a lot of people think it's just going to be a catapult from there and the price will just increase because there's going to be tons of demand for the ETFs and which will require them to actually buy Bitcoin. So I think there's a case to say yes and no, uh, at least in the very short term. Long term, I think personally that the ETF will increase demand for Bitcoin and Bitcoin adoption just by making it easy, more available to Americans that may want exposure by it. But, you know, they are reluctant to buy actual Bitcoin. There could be various reasons for that. You know, personally, I think it's always better to buy the actual Bitcoin. But some people may be afraid or they may have heard horror stories of people losing, you know, multiple Bitcoins because they lost their seed phrase for their um, self-custody, for example. But in the, I think... You know, there may be also like it might already be priced in, like you just said, it 3x in the bottom. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised whether it there is a significant decrease or a pretty significant increase, um, you know, shorter term. I think it could go both ways. So just be aware of that. And personally, if you're looking to get exposure to Bitcoin, see it more as a longer term investment, not as like something to trade because you can get uh, you can get wrecked trading Bitcoin. It's very yeah. there's a lot of leverage and it could go big swings from one way to another there was an interesting survey from bitwise on a potential bitcoin etf and i'll finish with this the sur- they surveyed 437 financial advisors in the u.s to gauge their views on crypto assets a lot of it revolved around bitcoin obviously so only 38 percent of advisors surveyed actually expect a 
spot Bitcoin ETF in 2024. But by contrast, Bloomberg ETF analysts put a 90% chance that it will be approved in 2024. So that is something that I think, and as I go over the survey here, you'll see that there's definitely a case that it may be bullish a bit more longer term. 88% of advisors are interested in purchasing Bitcoin, but are waiting until after the ETF is approved. Only 19, 19% of advisors said they are currently able to buy crypto in their client's account. 98% of advisors who have clients with crypto plan to maintain or increase the allocation in 2024. 88% of advisors received questions about crypto from their clients last year. 64% said the regulatory uncertainty was the top barrier for greater crypto adoption amongst their clients, while the volatility was the second reason at 47%. And 71% of advisors prefer Bitcoin over the second largest cryptocurrency, Ethereum. And that compares to only 53% the year before. So there's increased, I think, openness for Bitcoin. And what that tells me, is that more medium to longer term, there could be some big tailwinds here. Uh, just because people who aren't familiar with financial advisors, they don't necessarily talk to their clients all the time either, right? Some may have quarterly meetings, monthly meetings, yearly meetings. So a lot of clients that may, you know, have heard about Bitcoin, don't necessarily know it. They may not you know, look at that ETF option until six months from now when their next meeting with their financial advisor is. So it'll be really interesting how it goes. And then there's also the Bitcoin halving that will be having uh, happening in a few months along with that. So there's a lot of stuff happening in 2024. Again, invest in Bitcoin if you are okay with the volatility, learn about the asset, learn about the network, learn about how it works and just put an amount, and I have always said that, put an amount that you're comfortable with it going to zero. I don't think it will go to zero, but that way, if it drops 50, 60, 70%, you know, if you just put a couple percentage point of your portfolio, it's not the end of the world. It probably won't make or break your investments. Yeah, that's pretty much what I did. I had it, I mean, it's grown now to, it's my largest position by by quite a bit yeah, now, just because you're doing it's, pretty well. <laughs> yeah, just because it's tripled off the lows. I mean, I don't know very much about Bitcoin crypto in general at all, but I do own it. I I took a core position in it. What I would what I would say like four or five percent of the portfolio, and now it's gone up quite a bit. But um, the one the most interesting thing from this would be the only nineteen percent of advisors said they're currently able to buy crypto in their client's account. Like, would this just be like? right now they're buying crypto in a wallet or on like something like BitBuy or is this like 19% of clients had said when this comes out, they'll be able to buy Bitcoin for their client? No, just currently. So, you know, you, they meet with their client and they, my, my understanding of it, they meet with clients, they help them select investment or select them for them. So I'm assuming they're doing it probably via either multi-sig, so uh, where there's a kind of a third-party custodian, you have your yeah. keys, but in case you lose them. Or the other option, Canada is not the only country that has Bitcoin ETFs. So they may be going to foreign countries that have Bitcoin ETFs listed in USD and buying them that way or buying something like GBTC for their clients. So there are, there are definitely some options there, but they're not as easy as a US Bitcoin ETF. And also, you know, 
apparently all the um, asset managers that are launching or preparing to launch one, apparently in the US, there's like a marketing campaign war. And I was listening to another podcast on it where they're basically going like hard at the fees. I think BlackRock will be like 30 basis points. So 0.3%, which is quite good compared to the Canadian ones. Yeah. So uh, to the point that I may actually have a little bit of Bitcoin ETFs in Canada, if the fees are that low for the US ones, I will switch and buy the US ones. Because in the Canadian ones, I think the lowest fee is uh, 0.75. Yeah. I think there's one, is it QBTC? That's like 2%. Yeah, yeah, QBTC, yeah. I think uh, that would be uh, one of the higher ones. But the the actual ETFs, um, I think they're around 0.75 and 1%. So if you're looking at like 50 basis point lower, uh, that's, yeah, that's worth big. my while to uh, go in and out. If it was like five basis, 10 basis points, whatever, but uh, 50 basis point could be a big difference. And obviously they blackrocked with their army of advisors i mean i'm sure they'll be uh you know selling that and larry fink has been he was doing the rounds this summer and i think he's slowed down has only talked about it as crypto because they have to be careful of what they say when they have an an application an etf application so they can't really talk too much about it but i expect him to uh come back out and uh, be uh you know the number one uh, fanboy for bitcoin once it's approved if it is approved obviously yeah I mean, it adds so much flexibility as well. Like, cause for me, I have it in a tax sheltered account, which, you know, for a lot of these ETFs, when they come out, like the, the US, they're going to be able to add them to a tax sheltered yeah. account unless there's rules against it, which I can't imagine there would be. No, that's what I've read. They'll be able to buy them in their IRAs, their um, 401ks. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much any tax sheltered account. Yeah. And then even from the perspective of like with us, you know, buying a U.S. domicile fund, it increases your uh, foreign property ownership, I'm pretty sure. So I don't know exactly know what the rules are down there, but it's probably a disadvantage for them to be buying Canadian funds. So, yeah, I think this is going to be pretty, pretty big. And I mean, it's about time, really, you would think. I yeah. mean, they've, they've been out elsewhere for quite a while. Yeah, apparently JP Morgan will be acting as a market maker for uh, <laughs> some they will of those. Be? Yeah, they will oh, be really? as a market maker for some of these uh, Bitcoin ETFs. Yeah, so it'll be damn along. I think Jane Street will be another one. But yeah, so li- don't uh, don't listen to what Jamie Dimon says. Yeah. Just uh, just look at what his actual firm does because. Uh, you know, he may not like Bitcoin, but I think he likes making money. And if they can yes. make money off of it, they will. Uh, they'll do it. I think we've talked enough about Bitcoin. You want to move on to uh, a company that I love, uh, both as an owner and the clothes I'm wearing right now. I think I'm actually wearing Lululemon from head to toe. I've got like their jogger pants, the underwear, the shirt. I think oh, just really? the socks are not Holy. Lulu. Yeah, <laughs> I don't own any Lululemon. My it's wife does, but I don't own yeah. any. But yeah, this is it's a pretty short segment. Like the the one main reason I brought it up is because. Well, by the time this goes live, Aritzia will have reported, but Aritzia hasn't reported just yet. But, you know, these two stocks kind of get compared with each other a lot. Lululemon came out and announced a bump in guidance. It's actually a really small bump, but it's still pretty impressive considering how much pressure uh, retailers are under. Uh, as consumers just continue to pinch pennies. So pretty much what it did was it took the top end of its previous guidance and made it the new low end, maybe bumped it up a bit farther. But for the most 
part, like both increases were maybe only one to two percent, and it bumped its uh, gross margin expectations by about twenty basis points. But I find it pretty interesting, unless like you own Lululemon, so you probably follow it a bit. Like, is it out of the ordinary for them to like come outside of earnings and bump guidance, or I don't know? It was yeah, it's not the most common. I mean, I think they may have done it in the past, but it's not usually. They'll kind of just do it with the earnings yeah i'm not sure whether there was a reason why they did it this year but clearly i mean if you look at almost all their fashion competitors if we kind of stay in fashion retail they're bucking the trend like i think uh, i think that's the simplest way to do it it's not like you know it's not like a nike is necessarily like you know going bankrupt or anything like that but they're not like Nike's not doing all that well. I mean, Aritzia will have to see what their earnings is. But yeah, I mean, they definitely look like they're bucking the trend. I think they're in that sweet spot. And I I know I'm speaking for myself here, but I like their clothes because first, they're extremely comfortable. Now they have a wide range so you can get like essentially like dress clothes for men, which I like because I, you know, I have back issues. So their, their pants are actually quite comfortable and I can, you know, I'm quite mobile in them, which is really good when you have like a, a back problem. So, and their price, I mean, they're not the cheapest, but the quality is so good that I don't mind paying a bit more because I know it'll last a long time. I mean, most of my Lulu stuff lasts at least four or five years without any issues. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just uh, it's a testament of how good of a product and business they have, and they're still growing quickly. Yeah, it kind of shows you the strength of a brand and how people are willing to pay more for what they would perceive and actually how you know high quality the product is i mean something similar would be starbucks i mean their coffee costs a fortune but the drive throughs are lined up with 20 vehicles at any point in the day for people willing to pay six seven dollars for a latte but yeah i mean it would like i said it was a relatively small piece of news i just found it like i couldn't find any other situation where they bumped guidance just outside of earnings and especially by this tiny of an amount. So, I mean, I would imagine they're expecting a pretty strong quarter. So it'll be really interesting um, to see because I imagine Aritzia is pretty popular on this podcast. So, yeah. So what do you expect from Aritzia? Let's see if uh, your expectations, uh, your dreams are shattered or, uh, you know, fulfilled by this. That I don't <laughs> know. Yeah. I mean, I know I wouldn't expect an outstanding quarter, but I know for the past while they've had kind of inventories normalize. So as long as that continues, because I think that was a big part of the sell-off is people were freaking out that their inventory num- numbers had like just skyrocketed because they, uh, I guess you could say they kind of got a little bit ahead of themselves. They bought a bunch of inventory because of supply chain issues. And then like just a combination of that and just demand plummeting because of, you know, rising rates, pinching pennies, things like that. But I don't I don't have really any big expectations. I mean they're they're supposed to report a significantly better quarter. So last quarter they reported earnings of three cents and this quarter they're expected to report forty one cents. So it'll be interesting. I would expect some pretty big volatility. I it's usually been a guarantee it moves double digits on earnings. But yeah, I'm still a holder. Not a very yeah. big position, but I think they're I think they're gonna rebound. Yeah, I always have mixed feeling about them because sometimes, you know, I'll read things and then there's like, 
you know, it's easy to make a bull case, but then I th think about the bear case, and I've always been on the verge, but not quite there to, to pull the trigger. And it's in it's interesting what you said about the inventory, because there's certain types of business where having too much inventory is very dangerous because fashion goes out of style very quickly. So if you have too much, you have to discount it, hits your margins. And it's the same thing as, you know, uh, a business selling computers, right? Like it's, you can't have too much inventory because you'll have to discount it pretty heavily. And for our newer listeners, I think that's something important. If you have a business that is selling goods, you always have to make sure that uh, some business will be more sensitive to higher inventories than others. But if there's things that either go bad quickly or goes out of fashion quickly or things where there's constant technological progress, there's always a sweet spot of inventory. It's not very easy for a lot of business to be in that sweet spot because if you don't have enough, then you can't meet the demand and then the other way around like you explained it. Yeah, and that was kind of the thing. Like during the pandemic, they couldn't keep up. So they ordered a bunch. But now, as you mentioned, like if you get caught with a bunch of inventory and, you know, suddenly the inventory you have is out of style or, you know, people don't want it anymore, then you start having to mark it down to the point where you're either selling it marginally above cost or even in some cases just to get rid of, you know, storage costs, you're, you're selling it at cost or below cost. But it seems to have normalized now. I mean, it went from, from, uh, what would it be? Q1 2022 to Q2 2022, it increased by 50%. And then it nearly doubled again to the third quarter, but now it's kind of it's kind of back at normal. They still do have you know more inventory than they've ever had, but uh, it's going to be pretty interesting. There's also been a lot of negative press, I guess, in terms of just working at Aritzia and kind of the cultural mentality there. But um, okay, that I haven't really looked into. I mean, there was there was kind of a lot of talk about people getting treated pretty bad working there and uh, and stuff like that, but. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see if they can rebound and if it truly is just a slowdown in pricing. Because I think Aritzia, Aritzia might be more money than Lululemon. They're kind of like a mid-tier price range. Yeah. No, it'll be interesting. So tune in next next yeah. Thursday because uh, definitely Dan will be going over that. The next one on the slate here. So we'll have, I think, two more because I you have a really interesting segment uh, regarding the uh, SIBO loan uh, repayment that I think we should get to. The next thing I wanted to talk about is Allied REIT Special Dividend. Had a lot of questions, had one from uh, Joint TCI, and they wanted to make sense of the special dividend. So I'll, I'll break it down to the best of my understanding. Now, they are doing this, this special dividend because of their sell of their urban data center portfolio that happened earlier in 2023. I think the sell closed in August, if I remember correctly. There was a capital gain here, which means that they would need to pay corporate incomes taxes on it in order to avoid taxes at the trust level, Ally decided to pay a special dividend. This is because REITs don't have to pay taxes as long as they distribute the profits to shareholder. Do you know what it is for Canadian REITs? I think it's like 100%, is it? I know the US ones, it's 90, right? I thought it was 90, but I, okay. I might be wrong on that. But yeah, this was yeah. essentially to avoid that. Like They're structured as trusts because they get cash, they get tax benefits when they distribute their earnings back to shareholders. 
Yeah, exactly. So this applied, the special dividend applied to shareholders of record as of December 29, 2023. Now, the distribution is where it gets a little tricky. Yeah. So the distribution or dividend, however you want to call it, is $5.48 per unit. $0.48 cents per unit are being given in cash, and the remainder $5 was done by the issuance of units. However, for the $5 issuance, Allied will immediately consolidate the shares so that you will have the same amount of shares. So my understanding is that the reason for doing this is to maximize, uh, minimize the tax implication for shareholders. So by doing so, Allied is able to avoid paying corporate taxes, like I said, because it's a REIT. And the issuance then consolidation ends up being a distribution in the form of capital gains for shareholders who hold Allied share in taxable account. So essentially what it will do, it will increase your cost basis. And what means is that when shareholders do end up selling their shares, there will be a smaller capital gain, which will result in less taxes being paid or a greater loss if they sell at a loss. And then you can use it to offset something else in the future. That's my understanding of it. And the 48 cents is essentially a cash distribution, they said, is there to help shareholders pay any resulting taxes from the move. Now, that's my understanding. I'm not a tax professional by any stretch of the imagination. And I also own my shares in my TFSA. So for me, there's no tax implication and I'll only be getting the cash distribution. Uh, so it's no big deal for my end. It's basically, you know, a nice special dividend. And the cash distribution will be made on January 15, 2024. I know you're not a shareholder in Allied, uh, Dan. So did that make sense to you? <laughs> yeah, uh, Matt, yeah, Matt is a shareholder and we cover Allied quite a yeah. bit. So he went over all of this and it's it's pretty much the same. I mean, yeah, I find for the most part, like REITs are pretty inefficient tax-wise. So, I mean, I think most people tax shelter them unless you got a really big account, I guess, and you have some in a, in a cash or a margin account. But um, it's confusing, very confusing. Yeah, unless you have TMM, too much money. Yeah, and exactly. And you have to have it in a taxable <laughs> account. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't have much to add. Okay. No, I'm glad I didn't mess up the explanation too badly. So that's good. So we'll move on here. Like I was mentioning, um, I think you have a really interesting segment to the uh, SIBA loan repayment. So you want to go over that and I think we'll wrap it up after that. Yeah. So this, it pertains to the restaurant industry, what was released yesterday, but I think there's some pretty deep concerns just overall, like economically from what could happen. If you don't remember what the SIBA was, so it was an interest-free loan that they gave during the pandemic. It started out at 40000 I think. And then if you paid that 40000 back, or sorry, you had to pay back 30000 and then they relieved you of 10000 So now they, they eventually expanded it to 60000 loan. And if you paid back forty, they relieved the 20000 so the issue now uh, is we're getting very close to the deadline. I think it's January 18th and very few restaurants. Now there's a ton of companies that actually got the SIBA loan, but this is restaurants in particular. Uh, very few restaurants actually have the money to pay back this loan. So there's pretty much no doubt that restaurants have been hit the hardest over the entirety of the pandemic. So they were hit hard because of lockdowns, but then they also got hit arguably even harder by rapid food inflation. So 
you have the pandemic, the lockdowns caused issues, rapid food inflation caused issues. Then it's kind of a triple whammy. They had to raise their prices to accompany for this high inflation. And at the same time, the Bank of Canada jacked interest rates in an effort to curve spending. So you're taking higher costs to eat out coupled with significantly higher interest rates caused a huge slowdown in the industry. So Restaurant Canada came out yesterday and said that 53% of food operators are either break even or losing money. So this compares to just 12% uh, pre-pandemic. So the food industry employs millions of people. And I just think the overall impact on the economy as a result of many of these restaurants either having to just shut down or reduce staff levels would be would be larger than many think. And I mean, I think a lot of people... You know, I'm routinely getting emails from institutions that are pretty much telling me that they'll loan me that $40,000 to cover our SIBA loan. We don't have a SIBA loan, but I could just imagine that there is so many restaurants struggling right now that the sharks are kind of circling. Um, a lot of businesses are going to be put in a very poor position of having to take out a high interest loan from somebody else to cover the 40 grand just to get the 20 grand relieved. If you don't... so. It, it's not that difficult as a business, I guess, from an interest perspective, because if you don't pay back the loan, it goes to a three-year loan at 5% interest. And like I said, it appears to be a pretty attractive interest rate. But when you have to remember, the balance is 50% higher. So you don't get that $20,000 relieved. So you're getting a 5% loan at $60,000, uh, three-year term. So that works out to be around uh, $1,666 a month plus interest. So you're probably around two grand a month just to pay this back. And when 53% of restaurants are operating at a loss, I mean, that's just a, a recipe for disaster. And the government is also in a very weird position. I mean, putting aside the political element of, of all of it, they've already extended the deadline from December to January. And they say if the move the, if they say if they move the deadline to the end of 2024, which many are requesting, governments are even reaching out, provincial governments are even reaching out and, and requesting, it would cost the government over 900 million. But if you think of how much it would cost the uh, government, they dished out over 900,000 loans during the pandemic. If they kept this hard deadline and many businesses go bankrupt, it could it would cost the government more than 900 million dollars pretty quickly so i mean it's pretty tough over the next year to see any recovery in the restaurant industry because of you know ballooning costs mortgage renewals all the other expenses so although you feel like really bad for these businesses like it's a terrible position to be in i think extending the deadline might just kind of be kicking the can down the road to the point where yeah. It might cost the government $900 million. They might get to the end of 2024 and the same amount of restaurants just can't afford to pay this loan back, which eventually will just cost them more money. It's not It's not pretty. No, it almost seems, and obviously I think that would be too much to ask our, our government, but it almost seems that to me a solution could be, and obviously it would be extensive, but almost do it on a case-by-case -case scenario or have like kind of requirements where you can get it extend. So maybe you have to show, you know, projections with and without the loan to show if you can actually continue operating beyond the deadline and have it certified by, uh, you know, a professional accountant, by a CPA, something like that. Because like you said, I mean, what's the point in giving a loan when 
you know, the, the restaurant is not viable either way. Yeah. And there are, you know, and I went into, you know, the first few years I was in business school and that was always the rule, right? I think like one in five restaurants survives after five years, something like that. I can't exactly remember the stat. And then you have the lower traffic of people. We've been hearing that on and on where restaurants have been able to cope to some extent with higher prices, but now traffic, lower traffic is starting to really eat in into their bottom line. And at some point, I mean, like I understand some people are hurting, but at some point, you know, some business are just not good businesses. Yeah. If you have a good restaurant, it's a good business by all means. Sure. But, you know, why are you supporting businesses that are on life support either way? And I know it might be a bit harsh, but that's how capitalism works. Like if you don't have a good business, it's money losing. You probably should not continue if you've been doing that for an extended amount of time. Well, I imagine that's the thought process from a lot of restaurants right now. Like if they don't get relief on that loan, are you really going to pay $2,000 a month? Now, I don't know how the loans are structured. Like I know, you know, example, yeah. if, if you were to go bankrupt personally, you still owe the government your income tax. Like that doesn't get relieved. Now, does this loan get relieved if you go bankrupt? I don't know because it is a government issued loan. So I don't really know the logistics of that. But if you've got a money sinking business, and then the government hits you with a $2,000 a month payment. Like, are you really going to make that payment? I don't think you are. Mm-hmm. No, I, and I mean, obviously, I know some people will have different ideas on that. They might have different opinions. But I think as, you know, a Canadian, and I think if there's an ever another emergency like that, and there undoubtedly will be, whether it's a pandemic or something else, I mean, the... Um, I was listening to a good audiobook. I think it's the the second uh, book from Morgan Housel. I can't remember the uh, the title, but essentially, when you add in every kind of possible black swan event in a year, the probability for each, well, it makes the probability for one of them to happen at some point in the year not that high, so uh, not that low, because you just add them up together. And I think it's a good. I think it's a conversation we need to have as a society. Like when you do these programs, first of all, like they were just giving away money to every single business that yeah. was applying for it, whether they needed it or not. And if we weren't incorporated, just said, but essentially my understanding, if you, you know, like you said, if you paid it back, you essentially got like 20 grand for free from the government. So you'd be crazy not to do it at that point. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the businesses, so I think that's kind of how it goes. You know, a lot of these businesses probably can, are capable of paying it back. So again, that's why I do agree that, you know, maybe, you know, if you're going to give an extension, like try to do it on some level where a business would have to show financial hardship to get that exemption and, and force the businesses that can pay it back to pay it back. Cause it, I think, I mean, it, it makes little sense to pay this loan back early. It was interest free. So I bet you a lot of companies got this $60,000 and they've earned quite a bit of money on it. Whereas restaurants, you know, so much cash burn, like they took that 60,000, tried to stay afloat for two years. And now the deadline looms and they have none of that money. And it's just, yeah, it's a disaster. No. Yeah. And I know there's a lot like the logistics would not necessarily be easy, but maybe that's the best way to do it. You say, look, you have to pay these loans. If you're not able to pay it, 
reach out to us and prove to us that if we do extend it a year, you will be able to survive as a business and be able to pay it back. I think that that way the onus is on it instead of just, you know, doing a blanket kind of postponement when some businesses need it, some businesses don't. And I think it will just force the ones that do need the extension to also just look in the mirror and be honest yeah. with themselves. Like, is it actually, am I just postponing the inevitable a year or will my business actually be able to survive if I do get that extension? And I think that's kind of what the government is looking at either at as well. Like you look at how much it's going to cost if they delay it and they kind of have to take into fact, like how many of these businesses that can't pay it now are going to be able to pay at the end of the year? Like I don't see the restaurant industry improving over the next year like it costs an absolute fortune to eat out now and like interest rates if they come down are not going to come down to the point where there's a ton of financial relief so i don't know it's you know cutting down and you know i'm sorry for those who, who work in a restaurant or own a restaurant but at the end of the day cutting down on your spend and restaurants or uber eats that comes from restaurants it's one of the easiest ways yeah. to save money it's like the first thing people do yeah. really yeah, it's one of the easiest ways. Like, I know it sucks to, to hear if you're in that business, but um, I've done it definitely in 2023. Yeah. We've reduced, like, we used to go to a restaurant or order Uber Eats probably every week, every 10 days, once a week. Now, we if we go once a month, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty much where we're at, too. And, I mean, you can tell. You look 12%, like, 9 out of 10 restaurants were profitable pre-pandemic. Well, yeah, just under 9 out of 10, and now it's just over one out of two are, are losing money, which is, yeah. it's crazy. And we're seeing it. I, I don't know about Calgary, but we see it around here. So essentially like the good restaurants that offer, you know, good food at like reasonable prices, but really good food, like something kind of different, you know, it differentiates them a little bit. They are still doing quite well. The ones that either the food wasn't all that great or the prices were too high or a combination of both, I've noticed those are the one that seems to be uh, struggling. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. You have to provide a ton of value right now for the cost, considering how high the costs are. No, exactly. So um, I think we'll wrap it up for the episode. It's been, uh, you know, a fun one, different. We didn't have much earnings, but it's fun to have you back, Dan. And uh, for our new listeners, we always get a tick up in listeners in listenership at the time of the year. Thank you for listening. If you have some time, if you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or five star on Spotify, it helps more people discover us. You can also, uh, if you're looking for stock recommendations and uh, ideas, you can go to stocktrades.ca, which is uh, Dan's website. I've been on it before. Really good content, all different kind of thing, whether it's stocks, uh, ETFs, or yeah. Am I missing anything? Or yeah. I mean, we've got yeah, yeah, we've kind of been expanding to a lot of different stuff: personal finance stuff, GICs. Like we just put out like twenty pieces on GICs, different types, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, we're uh, we're putting out a ton of content there. But yeah, thanks uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. It's, it's good to be back. We'll see you next week. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.